Welcome to the Fern Podcast, As the Season Turns. Released on the first of the month, each episode follows the changing landscape of the seasons, from the moon and the stars to the tides and the trees. I'm Leah Lehndertz, author of The Almanac, A Seasonal Guide, and this podcast is a collaboration between myself and Fern, makers of small batch organic perfume, who blend, barrel age and bottle four fragrances a year, released at the equinoxes and solstices. I love wearing fern. In my quest to live in tune with the seasons, applying the season's perfume is a lovely little ritual that reminds me to use all my senses. We hope that this brief guide to the month ahead will awaken you to the rhythms of the year and help you to settle deeper into the seasons. The Sunrise On October the 1st, sun rises at 7.19am in Inverness and at 7.19am in Padstow. By the end of the month, this will barely have changed, but that is not because day length has stopped shortening. It is because of the ending of British summertime, which steals one hour from the morning of the 29th of October, the clocks being set back one hour at 2am. We know we are slipping towards winter, but the abrupt end of British summertime makes the descent almost shocking, like a curtain dropping. Time wasn't always mucked about like this. It was simply what the sun said it was. Solar noon moved across the country east to west, so Norwich was several minutes ahead of London, Oxford five minutes behind it, Leeds six minutes behind, Bristol ten minutes behind, and so on with town clocks across the country all displaying their own local time. It was the railways that changed all of this. With their quick journey times between time zones, almanacs had to be printed alongside timetables to avoid accidents and allow passengers to make connections. But the potential for problems was huge. Slowly but surely through the 1800s, each of the railways gradually adopted London time. In 1880, the unified standard time for Great Britain was made law. So relatively speaking, the country's time had only recently been brought into line when the idea arose to change it for summer. Perhaps it was the realisation that time can be played with and bent to our own convenience, but in 1905 William Willett began campaigning for the hour change to allow for greater enjoyment of summer evening hours. British summertime was finally introduced in 1916, a year after his death. This is the moment in the year when we stop playing and revert back to something closer to true astronomical time, give or take ten minutes or so, and we do feel the difference. Raise a glass of something autumnal and warming in memory of Willett and of all those stolen summer hours. In the pond. Falling leaves are drifting onto the surface of the pond now, and the growth around the pond is dying back, taking on shades of gold, brown and red. The reeds and rushes are bowed from rain and wind, and spiders' webs are strung between them. The pond is filling up again with autumn rains, and could be brimful by the end of the month. This month, Frogs will go into their version of hibernation, called brumation, 
a period of dormancy in which they will shut down their bodies to preserve energy. A frog absorbs oxygen in three different ways, through the lungs, as you might expect, through the lining of the mouth, and via the skin, which must be moist at all times. Some will actually hibernate at the bottom of the pond, digging into the mud and sitting out the coldest weather. Others will create their hibernaculars, or winter quarters, in the mud at the edge of the pond. Still others, including the year's juveniles, will find nooks and crannies in log or rock piles nearby, anywhere they can stay moist and keep off the worst of the cold until spring. You might spot a particularly fat frog at this time of year. This will be a female, already full of spawn, which she will carry all through the winter, ready for breeding time next February or March. Toads overwinter in old upturned flower pots, in piles of leaf litter or under large stones. The first frosts are a signal to many that the time for preparation is past and the moment has come for them to tuck themselves away. Everything either dies with the coming of the frosts or takes to the nooks and crannies around the pond and the surface, once alive with pond skaters and whirligig beetles, is still and quiet. The pace of life has slowed dramatically and the pond is ready for winter. To enjoy this month in the garden. Ornamentals. Michaelmas daisies, dahlias, chrysanthemums, Rudbeckia helenium, autumn leaves, seed heads, crab apples, rose hips, haws, rowan berries, ornamental grasses. Edibles. Medlars, quinces, apples, pears, seps, chanterelles, sloes, tomatoes, aubergines, chilies, peppers, Brussels sprouts, squashes, pumpkins, chervil, parsley, coriander, bay and rosemary. In the herbarium, the writer has been out in the forest. She squints at scraps of paper in the candlelight, trying to decipher her notes and drawings. On the table before her rests a splinter of, is it wood? Pale, a little spongy, it is dusted with mud from the forest floor. A shard of mushroom, fallen from the treetops. Look up as you walk through the woods in summer or autumn, and you might see, spreading majestically from the trunk of a tree, the dryad saddle mushroom. If you're very lucky, you might also see, perched elegantly upon it, a dryad. This bracket fungus can grow so broad and heavy that it falls from the tree under its own weight, so it is a risky, if romantic, place for a tree nymph to sit. I am a fan of bracket fungi, ever since a friend described the bulbous growths of birch polypore alternating their way up a narrow trunk as monkey steps. We are so often looking down in the forest, hoping for the secretive mushrooms among the leaf litter to reveal themselves, but above ground there are feasts to be had. Meaty names abound. Chicken of the woods, hen of the woods and beefsteak mushroom are all edible bracket fungi and resemble their namesakes in alarming ways. The beefsteak fungus is marbled red and white within and bleeds juicily when cut. 
Even the dryad saddle is known alternatively as pheasant's back fungus for its beautiful scaly patterning on the upper side. This is so pheasant-like that even a keen hunter might find himself with a vegetarian dinner and so much the better. But other bracket fungi are simply romantic. The artist's bracket provides a canvas in the wood and if you carve a picture into its underside you'll be able to return and admire it the year after and beyond. Also growing on the trunks of trees you might find King Alfred's cakes, lumpy protrusions that turn from brown to black just like the king's embarrassing confections. To make matters worse for Alfred, they can be used as firelighters, holding heat like glowing embers. None, though, are as romantic as the dryad saddle, high seat of the tree nymphs. Dryads come to us from the mythology of ancient Greece, but have captured the imaginations of anyone who senses life, beauty and mischief in the wood. My favourite dryad is Eurydice, so adored by Orpheus that when she died of a snake bite, he persuaded Hades to let her follow him out of the underworld and back to life. There was a condition, of course, that Orpheus must not look back. He couldn't resist, and lost her until in death he could join her again. The temptation to look back in the story of Orpheus and Eurydice always comes to my mind when I am seeking mushrooms in the wood. They are themselves mischievous life forms, and if you wander past some with the notion of returning to look for them later, it is almost guaranteed you will not find them. They'll be lost to you forever, and you'll be haunted by the chance you missed to admire again such fungal beauty. October's Island, the Isle of Ely, 52.4 degrees north, 0.258 degrees east, 24 kilometres north-northeast of Cambridge, England, 11 kilometres long, 6 kilometres wide. The Isle of Ely is different to any other island we've yet encountered. This island, appropriately for October, is a ghost island. Rising from the flat, grey fenlands of Cambridgeshire, Ely is no longer an island, but a hill, low by the standards of any other county, but high by the standards of the fens. Crowning the isle to the northeast is Ely Cathedral, one of England's most wonderful churches. On a clear day, it's visible from miles around, lending it the nickname of the Ship of the Fens, which gives us a clue to the region's watery past. Not so long ago, the fens were a flooded land, a region of salt marsh and swamp whose edges were invisible, impossible to tell where the marshes ended and the North Sea began. This was the southern arm of what's now the Wash, and the occasional ridges and hills we see in the fens were islands amid the waves. The highest, Ely, was the site of Hereward the Wake's resistance to William the Conqueror in 1070 and it was during the following century that the Diocese of Ely was founded and the cathedral's foundations laid. Named for the abundance of eels that swam through the surrounding fens, Ely prospered in the cathedral's shelter and in the reflected wealth of Cambridge, where the university was founded in the 13th century. Slowly, slowly, people began the long process of claiming the fens from the sea. 
Though the fertile silklands and islands had been periodically cultivated since the Roman occupation, it was not until the enterprising 17th century that widespread drainage took place. The Duke of Bedford engaged Cornelius Vermuyden, a Dutch engineer, to drain the peatlands, and his efforts were continued by the introduction of wind pumps, then steam, and finally diesel pumps. The Isle of Ely has been maintained as a not-island by careful, continued management, but the threat of inundation is never far from a Fenlander's mind. The thought that eels, once again, could swim out from the rivers and across the potato fields. You may wish to pause the podcast here for a moment while you find somewhere warm and quiet to close your eyes, sit back and settle down just for a minute into this month's Found Sound. For October's Found Sound, I made my way to Seven Oaks Wildlife Reserve a 73-acre conservation site in Kent. Once a gravel pit site, this landscape has been transformed into a haven for waterfowl, fish and flying insects. While many birds have begun their autumn migration to warmer climates, walking through the reserve's woodlands, I hear chiff-chaffs, robins, and a great spotted woodpecker. A flock of geese fly up from one of the site's five lakes and, as the day passes, the wind begins to pick up. The heavens open and, in the distance, I spot a family of grey heron hunched over in the rain. Trick-or-treating The 31st of October has always been associated with the supernatural, though it is unclear exactly why. We know that the 1st of November was the festival of Samhain, and was considered the first day of winter. And so on the 31st of October, end-of-summer feasts and celebrations were held throughout Britain and Ireland. Such shifts from one season to the next have always been considered the times when fairies, goblins, trolls and witches were at their most active. 
In addition, the coldest, darkest times of the year were approaching, and hence the time of year likely to see the most deaths, and the countryside around reflected this in dying back and withering. Divination rituals, mainly revolving around who was going to die next, were a major part of Samhain Eve celebrations. All of these elements may have fed into the night's spooky associations, when it was thought pertinent to avoid churchyards and crossroads, places where spooks would be most likely to gather. The origins of trick-or-treating itself lie in the far north of Scotland and in Ireland, where Samhain Eve was sometimes known as Puka Night or Goblin Night. The practice of dressing up and parading, holding carved vegetable lamps, originated with mummers, players who would perform for winter festivals. Mimicking the very ghouls that everyone was scared of and parading around the neighbourhood was thought to scare them away. October's perfume ingredient, carrot seed oil. The frilled umbels of wild carrot are part of that pale, high summer froth along hedgerows, in meadows and among coastal dunes, their pink and white flowers giving them their nickname of Queen Anne's Lace. Beloved of our native pollinators, wild carrot plays a crucial role in increasing biodiversity, so do consider planting them, especially if you have a wildflower meadow. Though their roots are edible, they are not as palatable as the plant's familiar cultivar, the domestic carrot. A sweet, earthy, woody oil can be extracted from the seeds of the plant. Along with its many uses in herbal medicine, the oil brings a distinctive, almost vegetal scent to a fragrance, with a hint of musk. Lovely wild carrot oil is probably the reason this humble plant, considered by many a weed, was cultivated in the hanging gardens of Babylon nearly 3,000 years ago. The Sunset After dark, you might just hear a little grunt in your garden, accompanied by much snuffling, shuffling and crashing around. You'd be forgiven for thinking that some kind of autumnal monster had invaded your leaf pile, but the truth is simpler and much sweeter. You've been blessed with a hedgehog. By October, these strange, spiny little creatures are largely focused on fattening themselves up for hibernation, which they will enter any time from now until late December, waking up in late March around the equinox. Much of their diet comprises protein-rich bugs and grubs, so if you want to encourage a hedgehog or two to spend time on your patch, make sure you encourage insect life first. Don't use pesticides, weed killer or artificial fertilisers and leave out leaf litter and log piles for insects to breed in. That said, in autumn hedgehogs can always do with a top-up. You can offer a little wet and dry cat or dog food in a saucer. Just remember that milk should never be offered as hedgehogs are lactose intolerant. Around dusk is the best time to leave out food and if you pop it in sight of a window, you might see a little friend wandering in for his supper. In autumn, pay attention to the size and condition of any hedgehogs in the garden. Hogs that are still very small might be hoglets from a late litter born in August or September. 
These little ones may need help from a hedgehog sanctuary, and you should certainly leave food out for them. Late hoglets will find it much more difficult to reach 500 grams, the weight at which they can hibernate safely in time for the cold weather. And if you see a hedgehog in the daytime, it is always best to call your local hedgehog expert. Hogs are dusk-loving animals, and a daytime visit is a sure sign that they might be having some trouble. Moon Phases The last quarter moon this month falls on the 6th of October at 2.48pm. Last quarter moons rise around midnight and are at their highest point as the sun rises. The new moon falls on the 14th of October at 6.55pm. The new moon rises at sunrise in the same part of the sky as the sun and so cannot be seen. The first quarter moon is on the 22nd of October at 4.29am. The first quarter moon rises near noon and is at its highest point as the sun sets. And the full moon falls on the 28th of October at 9.24pm. The full moon rises near sunset, opposite the sun, so in the east as the sun sets in the west. October's full moon is known as the hunter's moon or blood moon. You're in the pub and the autumn twilight is creeping in the door. A fire's been lit, the first of the season, and you feel pleasantly sleepy in the wood-panelled room. From over by the bar you hear music and you stare into the flames as a spooky song unfolds, a tingle creeping down your spine. This song is called A Wascod Goch, which means The Red Waistcoat, and it's probably the scariest song that I know in our, in our tradition. And it describes this man who's tossing and turning in bed, and he can't sleep, and he opens his eyes, and at the foot of the bed, he sees a floating white figure. And this creature, this figure, conjures up a suit, and it's describing this different elements of the suit and it's all floating in front of him and it's this coat and this hat and this red waistcoat and he describes the, the elements of the, the clothes like all, all of the little golden buttons on the red waistcoats is each of them is a tear and he's making this suit and in the end is the, the punchline is like well this is the suit that I must wear to bury my love and evidently this is the ghost of his lover conjuring up this suit very creepy song for what we call, well, there are many Welsh names for Halloween. Uh, one is Dydd Gwilyn the night festival of the souls, but another one is Ysbrydnos, which means the night of the spirits and night of the ghosts. So this is a very fitting uh, song for that. So here we go. A Wasgod Goch. Well, I know you don't know well, Troy, Arthur, Ossi, Methia, Hesky. And me well on Verger in Hugh, Arlili, and Anvon, suit of Farwell, in me, did I, did I? 
Thank you for listening to this month's episode. 
please do like and subscribe. All episodes are released on the first of each month. I'm Leah Landertz, and if you enjoyed this podcast, you will also enjoy my book, The Almanac, A Seasonal Guide to 2024, which has just been published. This year's theme is In the Garden. As the Season Turns is now in its third year, with over 30 episodes, there's lots to explore for each month. This podcast is produced by Jeff Bird and researched by Catriona Bolt. In addition to my own contributions, Zoe Gilbert, author of Mischief Acts, wrote and read The Herbarium. The folk song was played by Welsh musician Gwilym Bowen Rees, who also provided music for the intro. Alice Boyd is the sound recordist and designer who is travelling the UK through the year to make field recordings for each month's found sounds. This podcast has been created by Fern. Fern is an organic fragrance maker based in Somerset. Working with the rhythms of the seasons, they blend, barrel age and bottle four fragrances a year. Each fragrance is made to order for the names on the Fern production ledger. To join the ledger and find out more, visit www.fern.co or visit the link in the podcast description.